Chapter Four of A Slave Is a Slave by H. Beam Piper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. Degbrin and Ravney exchanged amused glances. Ravney said, "Well, I detailed a sergeant and six privates to accompany Honorable Degbrin." Ravney said, "They, how would you put it, Lawns?" I asked a slave a question. If he refused to answer, somebody knocked him down with a rifle-butt, Degbrin replied. I never had to do that more than once in any group, and I only had to do it three times in all. After that, when I asked questions, I was answered promptly and fully. It is surprising how rapidly news gets around the Citadel. You mean you had those poor slaves beaten? Erskyll demanded. Oh, no! Beating implies repeated blows. We only gave one to a customer. That was enough. Well, how about the army? If that's what those people in the long red-brown coats were. Shadrach changed the subject by asking Ravney. All slave, of course, officers and all. What will we do about them, sir? I have about three thousand, either confined to their barracks or pinned up in the citadel. I requisitioned food for them and paid for it in chits. There were a few isolated companies and platoons that gave us something of a fight. Most of them just threw away their weapons and bawled for quarter. I've segregated the former, with your approval. I'll put them under Imperial officers and noncoms for a quickie training in our tactics, and then use them to train the rest. Do that, Payar. We only have two thousand men of our own, and that's not enough. Do you think you can make soldiers out of any of them? Yes, I believe so, sir. They are trained, organized, and armed for civil order work. Which is what we'll need them for ourselves. In the entire history of this army, all they have done has been to overawe unarmed slaves. I am sure they have never been in combat with regular troops. They have an elaborate set of training and field regulations of the sort of work for which they were intended. What they encountered today was entirely outside those regulations which is why they behaved as they did. Did you have any trouble getting cooperation from the native officers? Shadrach asked. Not in the least. They cooperated quite willingly, if not always too intelligently. I simply told them they were now the personal property of His Imperial Majesty Roderick III. They were quite flattered by the change of ownership. If ordered to, I believe that they would fire on their former Lord's Master without hesitation. You told those slaves that they belonged to the Emperor? Count Erskyll was aghast. He stared at Ravney for an instant, then snatched up his brandy-glass, the meal had gotten to that point, and drained it at a gulp. The others watched solicitously, while he coughed and spluttered over it. Commodore Shatrak, he said sternly, I hope that you will take severe disciplinary action. This is the most outrageous— I'll do nothing of the sort, Shatrak retorted. The colonel is to be commended, did the best thing he could under the circumstances. What are you going to do when slavery is abolished here, colonel? Oh, tell them that they have been given their freedom as a special reward for meritorious service, and then sign them up for a five-year enlistment. That might work. Again, it might not. I think, colonel, that before you do that, you had better disarm them again. You might possibly have some trouble otherwise." Ravney looked at him sharply. They might not want to be free? I'd thought of that. "'Nonsense!' Erskyll declared. 
Who ever heard of slaves rebelling against freedom? Freedom was a good thing. It was a good thing for everybody, everywhere and all the time. Count Erskyll knew it, because freedom was a good thing for him. He thought suddenly of an old tomcat belonging to a lady of his acquaintance at Paris on Baldor, a most affectionate cat, who insisted on catching mice and bringing them as presents to all his human friends. To this cat's mind it was inconceivable that anybody would not be most happy to receive a nice fresh-killed mouse. "'Too bad we have to set any of them free,' Van Shetrak said. Too bad we can't just issue everybody new servile gorgets marked personal property of his imperial majesty, and let it go at that. But I guess we can't. Commodore Shatrak, you are joking, Erskyll began. I hope I am, Shatrak replied grimly. The top landing stage of the Citadel grew and filled the forward view screen of the ship's launch. It was only when he realized that the tiny specks were people and the larger bird-seed-sized specks vehicles, that the real size of the thing was apparent. Obrey of Erskyll, beside him, had been silent. He had been looking at the crescent-shaped industrial city, like a servile gorget around Zegenberg's neck. "'The way they've been crowded together,' he said, "'and the buildings, no space between, and all that smoke, they must be using fossil fuel.' It's probably too hard to process fissionables in large quantities, with what they have. You were right last evening. These people have deliberately halted progress, even retrogressed, rather than give up slavery. Halting progress, to say nothing of retrogression, was an unthinkable crime to him. Like freedom, progress was a good thing, anywhere, at all times, and without regard to direction. Colonel Ravney met them when they left the launch. The top landing stage was swarming with Imperial troops. Convocation chambers three stages down, he said. About two thousand of them there now. Been coming in all morning. We have everything set up. He laughed. <laughs> they tell me slaves are never permitted to enter it. Maybe. But they have the place bugged to the ceiling all around. Bugged? With what? Shatrak asked. And Erskyll was wanting to know what he meant. No doubt he thought Ravney was talking about things crawling out of the woodwork. Screen pickups, radio pickups, wired microphones, you name it, and it's there. I'll bet every slave in the Citadel knows everything that happens in there while it's happening. Shatrak wanted to know if he had done anything about them. Ravney shook his head. If that's how they want to run a government, that's how they have a right to run it. Commodore Duverin put in a few of our own a little better camouflaged than theirs. There were more troops on the third stage down. They formed a procession down a long, empty hallway, a few scared-looking slaves peeping from doorways at them. There were more troops where the corridor ended in great double doors, emblazoned with a straight broadsword diagonally across an eight-pointed star. Emblematology of planets, conquered by the Space Vikings, always included swords and stars. An officer gave a signal, the doors started to slide apart, and within, from a screen speaker, came a fanfare of trumpets. At first all he could see was the projection screen far ahead, and the tessellated aisle stretching toward it. The trumpets stopped, 
and they advanced, and then he saw the Lord's Master. They were massed, standing among benches on either side, and, if anything, Pierre Ravney had understated their numbers. They all wore black trimmed with gold. He wondered if the coincidence that these were also the imperial colors might be useful. Queer garments, tightly fitted tunics at the top, which became flowing robes below the waist, deeply scalloped at the edges. The sleeves were exaggeratedly wide. A knife or a pistol, and not necessarily a small one, could be concealed in every one. He was sure that thought had entered Van Shetrak's mind. They were armed not with dress daggers, but with swords, long, straight, cross-hilted broadswords. They were the first actual swords he had ever seen, except in museums or on the stage. There was a bench of gold and onyx at the front, where normally the seven-man presidium sat, and in front of it were thrown-like seats for the chiefs of managements, equivalent to the Imperial Council of Ministers. Because of the projection screen that had been installed, they had all been moved to an improvised dais on the left. There was another dais on the right, under a canopy of black and gold velvet, emblazoned with the gold sun and superimposed black cogwheel of the empire. There were three thrones, for himself, Shetrak, and Erskyll, and a number of lesser but still imposing chairs for their staffs. They took their seats. He slipped the earplug of his memophone into his left ear, and pressed the stud in the middle of his grand star of the Order of Odin. The memophone began giving him the names of the Presidium and of the Chiefs of Managements. He wondered how many upper slaves had been gun-butted to produce them. "'Lords and gentlemen,' he said, after he had greeted them, and introduced himself and the others, "'I speak to you in the name of His Imperial Majesty, Roderick III. His Majesty will now greet you in his own voice by recording.' He pressed a button on the arm of his chair. The screen lighted, flickered, and steadied, and the trumpets blared again. When the fanfare ended, a voice thundered, THE EMPEROR SPEAKS. Roderick III compromised on the beard question with a small mustache. He wore the stern but kindly expression the best theatrical directors in Asgard had taught him, public face number three. He inclined his head slightly and stiffly, as a man wearing a seven-pound crown must. We greet our subjects of Aditya to the Fellowship of the Empire. We have long had good reports of you, and we are happy now to speak to you. Deserve well of us, and prosper under the sun and cogwheel." Another fanfare and the image vanished. Before any of the Lord's Master could find voice, he was speaking to them. Well, Lords and gentlemen, you have been welcomed into the Empire by His Majesty. I know there hasn't been a ship in or out of this system for five centuries, and I suppose you have a great many questions to ask about the Galactic Empire. Members of the Presidium and Chiefs of Managements may address me directly. Others will please address the Chairman." Olvir Nikolon, the owner of Tchal Hoshet, was on his feet at once. He had a loose-lipped mouth and not entirely straight nose, and pale eyes that were never entirely still. "'What I want to know is, why did you people have to come here to take our planet away from us? Isn't the rest of the galaxy big enough for you?' "'No, Lord Nicolon. The galaxy is not big enough for any competition of sovereignty. 
There must be one, and only one, completely sovereign power. The Terran Federation was once such a power. It failed and vanished. You know what followed. Darkness and anarchy. We are clawing our way up out of that darkness. We will not fail. We will create a peaceful and unified galaxy. He talked to them about the collapse of the old Federation, about the interstellar wars, about the neo-barbarians, about the long night. He told them how the Empire had risen on a few planets five thousand light-years away, and how it had spread. We will not repeat the mistakes of the Terran Federation. We will not attempt to force every planetary government into a common pattern, or dictate the ways in which they govern themselves. We will foster in every way peaceful trade and communication, but we will not permit the plague of competing sovereignties, the condition under which war is inevitable. The first attempt to set up such a sovereignty in competition with the Empire will be crushed mercilessly, and no planet inhabited by any sapient race will be permitted to remain outside the Empire. Lords and gentlemen, permit me to show you a little of what we have already accomplished in the past three hundred years. He pressed another button. The screen flickered and the show started. It lasted for almost two hours. He used a handphone to interject comments and explanations. He showed them planet after planet. Morduk, where the Empire had begun, Baldor, Vishnu, Belphegor, Morglay, whence their ancestors had come, Amaterasu, Ermensul, Funfear, finally Odin, the Imperial Planet. He showed towering cities swarming with aircars, spaceports where the huge globes of interstellar ships landed and lifted out, farms and industries, vast crowds at public celebrations, troop reviews and naval bases and fleet maneuvers, historical views of the battles that had created imperial power. That, lords and gentlemen, is what you have an opportunity to bring your planet into. If you accept, you will continue to rule Aditya under the Empire. If you refuse, you will only put us to the inconvenience of replacing you with a new planetary government, which will be annoying for us and probably fatal for you. Nobody said anything for a few minutes. Then Rovnar Javasan, the chief administrator, and the owner of the mountainous Gregor Chimid, rose. "'Lords and gentlemen, we cannot resist anything like this,' he said. "'We cannot even resist the force that they have here. That was tried yesterday, and you all saw what happened. Now, Prince Trevanion, just to what extent will the Mastership retain its sovereignty under the Empire?' to practically the same extent as at present. You will, of course, acknowledge the Emperor as your supreme ruler, and will govern subject to the Imperial Constitution. Have you any colonies on any of the other planets of this system? We had a shipyard and docks on the inner moon, and we had mines on the fourth planet of this system, but it is almost airless, and the colony was limited to a couple of dome cities. Both were abandoned years ago. Both will be reopened before long, I dare say. We'd better make the limits of your sovereignty the orbit of the outer planet of this system. You may have your own normal spaceships, but the Empire will control all hyperdrive craft and all nuclear weapons. I take it you are the sole government on this planet? 
then no other will be permitted to compete with you. "'Well, what are they taking away from us, then?' somebody in the rear asked. End of chapter 4